Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi there, welcome to the Press Gallery, the Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the Smoke Gets in Your Eyes edition. It's Friday, May 20th, 2016, and my name is Sarah O'Donnell. I'm the Journal's opinion page editor, and I'm joined today in the newsroom studio by three of my opinionated colleagues, city columnist Paula Simons. Hello, Sarah. And provincial affairs columnist Graham Thompson. Good morning. And happy to have back in the Press Gallery, our business columnist, Gary Lamphere. Hello, Sarah. We dedicated a bulk of last week's podcast to the personal impact of the Fort McMurray wildfire, what it was like trying to escape, how residents were coping with the ongoing uncertainty, and what kind of leadership Albertans were seeing. This week, I'd like to devote at least the first part of the show to the impact that this wildfire is having on the energy industry. Then we can talk about the proposed timeline that Premier Notley outlined midweek for a potential return. So as we tape, this is day 18 of Fort McMurray's evacuation, and uh, the oil sand sector, after trying to gear up in last week, faced a substantial setback this week when the fire flared up again. I was just wondering if you guys could maybe give us a quick recap of what, what happened in the fire this week and, and where we were maybe Monday and, and what happened over the last few days. Well, we had the flare up this week where the fire moved north and began uh, attacking, for lack of a better word, the... Um, the camps where the workers stay, and actually burnt down one of the camps, destroyed. It was very um, amazing photographs that were actually sent, I guess, on, on Twitter. So the fire, it's so unpredictable. You had the premier telling people, look, we'll try and get some sort of timeline to get you back home, but this is a really unpredictable fire. And then that same day, this thing blew up and began burning north into the, into the camps. The actual oil sands themselves are okay, the actual plants, because they've got I call them natural fire breaks in the sense when they build the plants, they've got huge areas that are being bulldozed and this gravel on the ground. So they're not growing trees in the middle of the site. <clears throat> no, they're not. So um, I'm I'm wondering right now. It's raining in Edmonton, and I'm wondering if if that rain is going to reach Fort McMurray because it's poured for the last day here. That's going they need that kind of rain because this fire is not going to be put out by man. It needs nature's help to to extinguish this thing or even get it under control. You know, and I think it's important when people say camp. You know, when I hear the word camp, I imagine something pretty basic. But the place that burned down Black Sands is the Black Sands Executive Lodge. It was a, I think, a 660-room, very nice hotel. Um, this was not, you know, some makeshift thing with a few tent pegs. Uh, so, you know, the loss of that kind of infrastructure it is big. But as Graham says, you know, I've seen a lot of people from outside Alberta saying, you know, well, what happens if the fire gets to the oil sands? Will the oil sands catch on fire? And I think there's sort of a misunderstanding about just how flammable bitumen actually is. 
But of course, strip mining is an excellent way to build fire breaks because if you chop down all the trees and make things look like Mordor, um, then it doesn't catch on doesn't fire. Look like Mordor, Paula. No, I think we're gonna we can disagree no, on that, was, that. No, no, that was ironic. Could you not hear the? <laughs> could you not hear the air quotes, everybody? Mordor. All right, fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Gary, you've been watching this closely from day one, and I know you care about the human impact, but I also know that you understand better than and probably most people in the newsroom, what kind of blow this is to the oil sands industry, this fire. So can you talk to me a little bit about what the impact has been? I, it's a pretty broad question, but I, I just want to get your sense of what situation this has left the business side. Yeah, and, and thanks for pointing out that I do actually care about people because <laughs> I, I get emails from people, angry emails from people when I write about the business side of this. It is my job to write about the business side of it. I would just remind readers out there who... <laughs> perhaps aren't acquainted Press with Press gallery listeners about. are very sophisticated. They'll understand. I'm sure. But uh, yeah, just in ballpark terms. So uh, when, when the fires hit, the initial analysis we were, was we we're going to lose something on the order of two weeks of production, 10 days to two weeks of production, a little over a million barrels a day. I think they've sort of specified 1.2 million is now kind of the working number. Um, Conference board came out with a report this week that said that uh, working on those assumptions, we're looking at a hit to Alberta's GDP of about one-third of a point annualized over this year, a third of a point, little under a billion dollars worth of production loss. But, you know, as Paula referenced and Graham referenced, this camp went up this week, and that's kind of set everything back. So instead of this two-week period, uh, this two-week interlude, now people are talking three to four weeks, so perhaps not until early June while well, we're getting pretty late in May now, early June before we get things ramped back up. Well, and of course, so, they, they, they put workers back in, and then they had to take them, re-evacuate them, so, I mean, that right. puts everything behind, too. A lot mm. of complexity there. So it's all a moving target, but let's say we double that conference board estimate, worst-case scenario, and we lose four weeks of production and not two. You can you know, safely uh, increase the, that one-third of a point GDP loss to something on the order of half a point to two-thirds of a point, and the billion or so to two billion of lost production. Now, of course, there's going to be catch-up later in the year and next year. So the, 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 the flip side of the story is that the projection is that next year we're going to have a surge of GDP as the rebuilding begins to the tune of about half a point, I think. Hmm. So what does, I mean, what does that actually do? To, I mean, the price of oil is up. So... To, you know how much is the is this affecting? Is, is this affecting? The, I mean, how much is that production coming offline actually juicing the price of oil? Well, I think I think what it is doing for sure is maintaining the sustained elevation in the price. So we had this big run right from twenty six bucks in February, and uh, then it percolated up to the the low forties. And I think there was a general sense among the analyst community anyway that okay, we've had our run, we've had our bounce back. Now it's time for a pause. We didn't get the pause because of this fire and other international disruptions in supply in Nigeria. Uh, in uh, Venezuela, there's a uh, continued decline in production and big concerns about their future produ production. The U.S. decline is about 100,000 barrels a month right now. They're losing uh, as shale plays come off, uh, and they're not reinvesting in these things, and that's expected to continue. So there, there is a whole international element to this. Uh, it's not all about us, but uh, we're, uh, th these are big numbers out of Alberta. Because it, it I have a question as well. Sorry, just yeah. back to the human face. I'm this. just going to sit back. You guys go ahead. <laughs> Take over. Um, I saw some stories saying that the oil sands companies are not laying anybody off, and people are still getting paid, even those right. who are being forced out right. of their homes, who are not working, obviously. Um, they're still getting paid. Is that right? That's, that's the word we've got. And yesterday, we tried to assess what the impact is on contractors yes. who are not employees, and we're not getting nearly as much information on that side. My guess is a lot of contractors are probably out of luck right now, but... 
you know, we've been unable to confirm details on that. And of course, contractors are really hard to track because they're not often eligible for EI. So, That's right. Uh, but yeah, because didn't, didn't oil hit almost fifty dollars? We're at forty eight and change today. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So, do you know are any of the companies currently, as of today, day eighteen, are they operating? Does anybody have production going right now, or is everybody kind of idling and paused? Well, the buzz was that Shell was the first back, but that was that that information is about a week to ten days old now. Mm. So, how did this fire impact that? I don't know. My guess is it's disrupted that return. That ramp up, I don't know. Do you know, Graham? Have you heard any more about that? No, I know. I think Notley mentioned, uh, I think it was Shell was still producing. That was on Monday. I'm kind of losing track of days now. Because it's interesting, when she was talking about how unpredictable the fire was, uh, a day or so later, she announced uh, a plan to take people back right. on June the 1st. Um, but it, we get the impression that the oil sands, again, that may have stopped production oil sands themselves, the plants have not been affected, like physically haven't been burned down by mm -hmm. the fire. Now, so it was about a week ago when the Premier held a meeting and news conference with oil sands executives. Industry leaders like Suncor CEO Steve Williams seemed very confident about the resiliency of the industry. How, if at all, do you think the past week has changed that? Do you think they're still feeling that kind of confidence? I don't think there's a, I don't think it changes the long-term trajectory of the oil sands. Uh, I do think it, it probably is going to lead to questions and reevaluations about how to prepare for events like this. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, long term, I don't think it. I think it's a blip. Long term, I mean mm -hmm. that sounds heartless, but I think two years from now, you know, it, it's going to be regarded as a blip. How do you think that the oil sands companies, from our perspective here in Edmonton, how do you think they've reacted during this disaster? They've they've always been big players in the community up there, but do you feel differently about those companies today than you did maybe a month ago? Well, I think from a, you know, from a crass public relations point of view, their initial reaction has been pretty good because, you know, they opened the camps, they gave uh, refuge to people who were fleeing, and then they helped to fly people out. I think I didn't realize how sophisticated their air infrastructure was up there because I'd said to somebody on Facebook, well, you know, I imagine these are small airstrips. And somebody wrote to me and said, no, 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 not small airstrips, big air, you know, they can fly big planes in and out. And of course, that's how they fly lots of their people in and out, uh, you know, bypassing the Fort McMurray Airport completely. So I thought their initial crisis reaction, uh, the way they flew hundreds and thousands of people who were not their employees out, um, you know, from the very earliest days, they were helping young families get their kids out of, of the fire zone. Mm. Um, There's been so, some talk that this puts a friendlier face on the oil industry and that this actually could potentially help get the rest of Canada to buy in to the benefits. Do any of us believe well, there that? Was actually, there was some comments last week from Bruce Cameron. He's a pollster in Calgary. He was doing a, an assessment of a lot of the, the tweeting, social media going on, and he saw a an increase of positive feedback, they can call it that, for um, both Notley, Premier Notley, and Prime Minister Trudeau. But he also thought that people across the country are looking at Fort McMurray a bit differently. They're actually seeing it as, as a place where people have jobs, you know, just like people across the country. This is not, as uh, Paula calls it, Modor. It's not what I call it. That's <laughs> what... And, and all the minions aren't there feeding the beast. In fact, this is a city well, of... The, for the record, Paul Simons is no I know. God Barlow. I'm, I'm right. joking here. Yes. But the and, thing and, is, and they're not minions, they're orcs. <laughs> so people up there actually have jobs and they go to work and they have kids. And so, the, and so Bruce Cameron was talking about how the city was actually being discussed in a, a light 
that reflected something other than protesters and the oil sands and mm -hmm. the environment. And I was on a panel, I was actually moderating a panel this week discussing the future of the oil sands. This was planned long ago before the, the fire. And there was a lot of uh, people there feeling uh, more optimistic about it. And the feeling was that maybe it will help the image of Fort McMurray. I think it, it, it will maybe in the short term. People will look at it and go, yeah, this is a city full of middle-class Canadians. Um, but will it help get any more pipelines built? I really doubt it. Yeah, I, th I think the other question to be looked at now is how the oil companies respond to the rebuilding crisis. Because, you know, what I was also hearing on social media and in, you know, in personal conversations were people saying, you know, the oil companies sure didn't pony up to do things like twin highway 63 in a timely fashion. You know, I, I mean, I, I hear chatter from people saying the oil companies have done the bare minimum to support Fort McMurray from an infrastructure point of view. Now, are they going to be called upon at a time when they're feeling an economic crunch of their own? to help pony up for rebuilding? Are people going to be looking to the big, big players? You know, not not so much Syncrude and Suncor, but even the big international players, uh, whether that's, um, you know, Shell, Total, um, you know, the Chinese, to see, uh, you know, is are, are those companies going to come to the table and help to rebuild Fort McMurray, not just with cheerleading, but with some, you know, with some cash. Is there is there going to be money on the table to restore the hospital, to restore the, you know, the the rec centers? I mean, what role do they do they need to play as good corporate citizens? Gary, what's the situation of the oil sands companies right now? Do well, they I have what's their bottom line? Can they afford to be forking out more than they might normally be expected to under the various tax regimes and royalties? Yeah, I, I mean, I think, Bruce, just to respond to your earlier point, I think the oil companies have done a great job, actually, uh, housing people during the worst of the crisis, getting people out, uh, facilitating uh, the transit of thousands of people, working with the airlines. I think WestJet also did a, a great job. Uh, in terms of the, the longer-term rebuilding of Fort McMurray, you know, these are early days. I mean, we, we got insurance adjusters still talking to people who lost their houses. This is going to play out over the next 6 to 12 months. I personally don't think it's the primary role of the private sector to rebuild a city that's been devastated by wildfire. I do think they will play a role. It's you know, I'm, I'm unsure what that role is going to be, but I'm sure they will play a supportive role of some sort. Um, one thing I would mention, uh, Paula re referenced the Chinese, and I, I feel kind of sorry for CNOC. I mean, they, they, they have come to Canada, invested, and they've got nothing to show for it but misery. I mean, these guys got hit harder than anybody else down at the Nexon Long Lake facility south of McMurray. I think that's probably going to be the last to come online after these facilities ramp up. So um, if anybody is a big loser out of this uh, among oil sands operators, it's Seanock uh, and Nexon. Because yeah, I don't think we've had a good assessment yet of what kind of impact that fire had down there. Did we down south of the city? Well, they, they really got whacked. And uh, I mean, it, it was actually threatened, uh, unlike the actual facilities north of the city. So, um, and, and just one other small point to make uh, with respect to Black Sands, Big Lodge, uh, a, lot of, a lot of beds were lost, but I think the, uh, the camps up there house something like 8,000 people in ballpark terms. Mm -hmm. I think that was about 665 beds, yeah. as Paul, so we're talking like less than 10%, and, and, yeah. and, and, percent, and I, right? I think from just looking at the pictures of what Black Sands was, they called it the executive lodge, so I don't think it was a lot of the... You know, frontline worker bees were staying there. It looked pretty. It looked pretty plush. You know, I was in one of the camps mm -hmm. last week, and they had the executive rooms, 
and it's, it's a term they use. Oh, okay. Right? So it's not for the <laughs> mucky mucks. It is for it's for the the one I was in. It was um, very nice in a sense. It had each had a, a single room with a queen or a double sized bed in it, a TV, their own shower, washroom. Um, so there's some privacy, and the TV was all kinds of satellites. So, but then. As, as a, imagine a really fancy Atco trailer divided up into little rooms. <laughs> In fact, there were Atco trailers. And then they had a, a big... Du- which camp was this? This was the one I was... Uh, the south of the city that became an evacuation center. The one you're wandering over you That's about. right. Yeah. 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 So, um, so they have you know, rec facilities, a really nice kitchen, really good meals. The thing is, these things are portable. So th- there's other camps out there that are not really being used because of the downturn in the economy. Mm-hmm. So, so oh, they, can, they can move them. They can move these camps. It takes uh, weeks to do. It doesn't, you can't do it overnight. They're not on wheels. Yeah. You've got to uh, tear them down and move them. You can actually move. The camps that aren't being used in, in Alberta can be moved in to help uh, or take over the so camps we, that have been destroyed. We could see some of those pieces moving north later on. Well, possibly. just I guess in theory, based on what I've t- been told by people who run these camps, they can be moved around relatively easily. Um, but it's back to this, uh, without being an apologist for the oil sand company, um, you know, they, they do pay taxes and there's royalties, a whole different thing, but they pay a lot of money to the economy to, you know, to help with infrastructure and places like Fort McMurray. Oh, no, I'm, I'm not saying that they have, yeah, I'm not saying this is the primary job of these companies, but I think in terms of social license and social. Public relations, yeah, yeah I understand. It's a, it's a public relations social contract issue. Mm-hmm. I'm not suggesting that it's their job to rebuild. As Gary says, first of all, A, insurance companies exactly. are going to be on the hook for a lot of this. Uh, it's not just all going to be coming out of the public purse, as we talked about last week. It's not like the flood situation in southern Alberta. But I just think it will be incumbent upon them to keep on burnishing their image by looking like they're putting their shoulder to the wheel here, too. And it's in their long-term practical interest too. I mean, if Fort McMurray doesn't get repopulated in a timely fashion, it's much harder for them to to do what they do. Mm-hmm. Now, we had taught you, Gary, you mentioned about, you talked about the impact of the oil sands shutdown on the broader economy. Graham, I was just wondering if at the legislature, there is any talk starting to happen about what impact this might have on the province's bottom line, not just from the, oh, the cost of dealing with the disaster, but the perhaps lack of loss of revenue from royalties. Um, No one wanted to talk about that, you know, in the early days, but we're past early, early days. Well, the fire's still a problem. Um, No, I've I've seen no talk about the actual dollar figure. Mm. No one's actually saying this is going to cost us X amount of dollars because it's still actually adding it up. Um, When Gary talked about the insurance adjusters going in there, it's going to take a while for them to figure out what the cost is to to the the city and the insurance companies and the problems and the price of oil and figuring it out. It's going to take some some time to figure out the price of oil and the reduction in in our production. So I think that it's going to take some time. Uh, We are starting to see a little bit of the post-fire politics start to pop up. Okay. Um, We are seeing some questions in the House, even though they're trying to play nice, relatively speaking, right now. The questions from Brian Jean when it comes to the fire very much like um, can you assure people from Fort McMurray they can get home as soon as possible can you assure them that you'll be helping them out of course the government says of course we'll do all we can but then later in question period one day there was a question uh, about the government changing the budget for firefighting uh, in the mm-hmm. provincial budget this year you know, they, they actually did a trick that the PCs have done for years and that's downplay the estimate they'll be spending this year on fighting fires and they were changing some of the, the accounting uh, figures on that, and the Fire Smart program as well was trimmed. 
course, this happened but within days of the fire breaking out. You cannot blame the province for the fire, but you do see the wild rose begin to question the government's priorities when it comes to fighting fires. And, and the government's response basically was, how dare you accuse us of, start, us of starting this fire? How dare you accuse us of being to blame for this? So you see the government getting really, really testy. So you can imagine what's going to happen in the days to come, weeks to come. You're going to have the wild rose, while not blaming the NDP for the fire, are going to blame the NDP for not having the, the city in uh, better shape to be able to fight back. Mm-hmm. And you're going to see the uh, the government get really uh, thin-skinned on this and accuse the wild rose of being unfair. So we're starting to see that coming out now. You expect it to come out over the summer. The session will likely go longer. It's supposed to end on June the 2nd. It'll likely end up sometime near the end of June before they wrap up. But expect this this narrative, which is relatively tame and civil right now, to change. Because, I mean, certainly, up until now, I mean, I mean, Graham wrote a really interesting piece this week about Brian Jean and and the role he's played in all of this. And I thought when they had the press conference this week to announce the tentative timeline for people to return, I thought it was very clever politics on Rachel Notley's part to have Brian Jean stand right next to her and to present a united front. I also think there's quite a fascinating thing going on with the roles that they've kind of taken on and been assigned, where Rachel Notley is being the very cool, calm, rational one, and Brian Jean is the person expressing his genuine emotion at loss of his own home, at loss of some of his family's homes. And I thought it's a fascinating sort of uh, subversion of the traditional gender paradigm, where she was the one who was very cool and collected on the stage, and he was the one who was fighting back tears. And together, I think that they have done a really good job of channeling the way people in Alberta are feeling and the information people in Alberta need to hear. Mm-hmm. But but Graham's right. That is a temporary uh, situation. And Properly so. I mean, we do actually need a good opposition to be holding the government to account in the weeks and months ahead. But I do think that it is, especially when we're seeing very bad behavior in Ottawa right now, (laughs) to be able to look and see, look at the Alberta legislature where we are modeling excellent leadership in crisis. And another issue quickly is is playing to this this political dynamics. It's interesting is, of course, Brian Jean is the one of two MLAs from Fort McMurray. Right. So when he's speaking, uh, Paul is right, he lost his own home. Um, he's speaking not only for the, he actually knows what his constituents have actually gone through. He's living it with them. He's, yeah. he's an evacuee of sorts himself. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting as well. I've asked him a few times, <clears throat> excuse me, what he thinks of Notley's <clears throat> reaction to the fire. How has she responded to it? And he would never really answer the question. He would say, I've been too busy to to notice that, you know, how she's doing. I've been too busy working for the constituents. Um, even when they announced at that joint news conference a timeline, June the 1st, they can start moving in, Brian Jean thanked the Premier for keeping him informed. It wasn't him thanking her for the great work she's done. He wasn't saying you've done a wonderful job as leader. He just said, thank you very much for keeping me informed so I can let people who I represent know what's actually happening. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. So in other words, he will not give her full credit. He's being careful. He's being very careful because I think he knows if he comes out and says she's wonderful and she's amazing, next election campaign. <laughs> there's gonna there's be a, a soundbite right there. there, yeah. yeah. But, you know, I think the two of them actually have been pretty wonderful and amazing uh, as a tag team. And yeah. it, it's a funny thing 
to see them, I think, having formed this kind of working partnership in this moment of crisis. Because yeah, they weren't together as on the opposition side of the floor because Brian Jean hadn't been elected pr- before the previous election. So there wasn't any, you know, oppos- former opposition member camaraderie. So um, what do you think of the way that they've s- laid out the timeline for return? They've said tentatively, they actually set a date, June 1st, tentatively with like a ton of caveats and you know all things depending smart strategy to actually put a date down there or uh dangerous if it doesn't actually play out that way and people can't go home on june 1st well i guess enough staged re-entry i mean that's a political question so probably better handled by you guys but uh i mean it depends on the weather doesn't it i mean really on the vagaries of of the weather as graham noted we're getting rain here today Uh, let's hope we get to lots of rain uh, in the wildfire zone um, I, I'm sure it must be really difficult to manage the expectations of these folks that are out of their homes and just dying to get back there yeah. to see what's left, what damage has been incurred. What a tough job. Yeah, we don't want them dying when they get back there is the yeah. problem. You know, with the, there's still, you know, an explosion that may or may not have been caused by the natural gas coming back on. There'll be a boil water advisory till the end of the month. I think Notley is really damned if she does and damned if she doesn't because uh, as we discussed last week, I was at the first uh, Fort Mc- uh, Wood Buffalo City Council meeting and people were lambasting Daniel Larravee, the Minister of Municipal Affairs, for not being able to give them even a tentative timeline. So they, you know, we need to know, people need to plan. So as soon as Notley announced a tentative timeline, those same city councillors were denouncing her and saying, well, you know, that seems very aspirational what if you know what if you disappoint people if they can't get in there then and I thought well um, that's interesting because you're exactly the same people who were demanding that she set a timeline the week before I mean I think it does give people a sense Mm -hmm. of how long this is going to take and I think when they say to people you know there will be a boil water advisory till the end of June we are not reopening the schools they're sending people a pretty clear message do not all come stampeding back and you know, it's going to be very difficult. And I mean, the staging of this, we say June 1st, but June 1st isn't Fort McMurray. June 1st is Anzac and Gregoire Lake. And, you know, I mean, they're going to go back bit by bit by bit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I know my parents technically can go back on day two, theoretically, if all things can, can sit, go. But, you know, they're it was very clear that if you go up, you have to be prepared to fend for yourself. And I think people might want to go up see what the status of their homes is and then figure out if that's a place they can stay in or have to come back to other cities. Now, there was other a lot of other news at the legislature this week. Uh, we'll, we'll wrap up the fire uh, conversation there for now. There was a bill adding restrictions to the payday loan industry. Yay. Another bill outlining changes to how pay is set for executives on agency boards and commissions. We'll have to leave all of those. They'll hopefully still be talking about them in the legislature but, next week. There was another, uh, there was a decision, a pipeline decision that, you know, in any other week would be our probably lead topic. Gary, can you tell us about the pipeline decision that uh, came down from the National Energy Board yesterday? Just broad strokes, quick broad sure, strokes. Yeah, so we're talking the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion, Kinder Morgan's pipeline expansion to Burnaby from uh, Edmonton Tripling. The capacity of that line, if it's approved, the NEB approved it with, what, 157 conditions, I think it was. 157 caveats. That seems so, like a lot of, is that a lot of conditions for a pipeline approval? Uh, I think it's fewer than Northern Gateway, yeah. but, yeah. But, the, but, the, but the reality is, you know, back back in the day, the NEB had the final word. It ain't got the final word anymore, right? This is like the beginning of a whole other process. It's going to go on for God knows how long, probably another year. And there'll be a, a response from the federal government in December. That's the timeline right in now. In December? Yeah. That's really far away. I mean, 
The mayor of Burnaby was on As It Happens last night, assuring everyone that he will personally chain himself and stand in front of the bulldozers to stop this from happening. So, uh, oh, that's the, not promising. No, the political the political cell in British Columbia and in the Lower Painland, um, you know, in some ways, Trans Mountain is the easiest pipeline to get approved because it's twinning an existing route. So you're not, you know, you're not having to dig up and disturb, you know, a whole new, a whole new uh, footprint. But when you get to the end, tripling capacity means tripling the size of the tanker farm at the end. It means more tanker traffic, uh, and so. You know, it's fine for the NEB to say that the economic benefits outweigh the environmental risks. And if you're sitting in Alberta, that seems like a very logical argument. If you're sitting in Burnaby, not so much. Hmm. Graham, what was the reaction at the legislature to that approval? I mean, was there 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 dancing in the fountain? (laughs) Um, There just isn't enough dancing in the fountain. There isn't enough dancing in that fountain. they're, they're, they're happy, but they're being cautious. And I think Paula's right. You know, they know this is, it's, it's nice to get this, but the political fight, it's changed so much in the last uh, decade in terms of before it was the federal government makes the final decision. Now you've got provinces stepping in the way. You've got towns and cities along the way. Of course, First Nations, a very important piece of this, will be an issue as well if, if they say, and they are saying right now, no in many fronts. And the thing about Kinder Morgan and Paula, again, uh, it's a good point. A lot of this pipeline has been twinned already through Alberta, the national park. This thing runs through Jasper. And it was twinned. Nobody raised a peep when it was twinned. But that was years ago. And of course, now it's into BC. And I think that the political, I think that the the government here knows the political fight is just beginning on this. You know, I mean, this is in many ways the safest pipeline route because it's coming out in the south. It's not, you know, in that northern part of the British Columbia coast, which is I think, more environmentally fragile and more unspoiled. If we can't get this pipeline approved, I don't know how we're ever going to get any other pipeline approved. This is the easiest one. If this can't be a win for for the pipeline industry, uh, we're going to have a much bigger problem. So probably more on that in coming weeks. Quick round of good stuff from the gallery to conclude the show. That's where we share something notable that we think other political wonks might be interested. I'm going to start by suggesting that everyone go check out the 60 Minutes website where they've got some really nice pieces up looking at uh, court longtime CBS correspondent Morley Safer's uh, uh, life's work. He died this week after just having kind of a last, a final episode all dedicated to his reporting. And this is why nobody should ever retire. Well, I'm not going to take that advice, but it was certainly, uh, there, there's tons of good pieces. Uh, so I'll put up the link directly to their site and you can just look around at some of his amazing reporting from Vietnam and and, uh, and beyond. Graham, do you have something you'd like yeah, to share? <clears throat> totally off a, a different topic. This was an editorial in the Toronto Star last Sunday defending Sophie Gregoire Trudeau for getting more help. Mm -hmm. I thought it was interesting. I I agree that, you know, this is an issue regarding the role of the prime minister's wife. And she was asking very quietly on a news program for more help because she gets so many requests to talk publicly. She has one, one assistant right now and she wants some more help so she can actually do more public events. And I thought people have been chastising her and calling her spoiled Mm -hmm. um, and privileged. I think it was a really interesting uh, editorial defending her for asking for help and why she should get some help as a prime minister's wife. Paula, you have a good read for suggestion for us. I have a suggestion. I've been I've been saving because the last two weeks it wasn't appropriate, but I've decided that this is the time I'm going to tell everybody um, that uh, Lin Manuel Miranda's. 
incredible play Hamilton was nominated for a record number of Tony Awards this month. It comes on the heels of its Pulitzer Prize uh, nomination. It, this is, of course, for those of you who do not have a 19-year-old daughter at home who makes me listen to the Hamilton soundtrack every single night, that uh, Hamilton is a musical, a rap musical about the life of Alexander Hamilton, the hero of the American Revolution who became uh, the first uh, Secretary of Finance uh, first uh, Treasury Secretary in the United States. It's a natural topic. It's a natural for a musical. It, yes, it, it is. It is brilliant. So I'm going to recommend two numbers from Hamilton. I'm going to recommend In the Room Where It Happened, which is the best song you'll ever hear about the creation of the Federal Reserve. I hope it's the only song we ever hear about the creation of the Federal Reserve, frankly, but continue. Um, uh, and uh, then uh, I'm also going to recommend You Belong to Me, which is the love song that George III sings to the American revolutionaries about, um, uh, well, he's, you know, they should come back to him because he'll go mad without them and he'll prove his love by sending a fully armed battalion to remind them you know, of his love. Thank you for those recommendations it is, because it I, is great. I admit the drama nerd in me should have listened to that soundtrack long ago. I have not. I will now make sure that I fulfill my responsibilities. It, it, it is. It is awesome. It is. It is. You know, an extraordinary work of theater that is about race and politics and history and how we remember history uh but the songs are also really lots of fun gary can you beat a song on uh the the federal the reserve, the federal reserve. Yeah, that's a that's a tough one i'd yeah. like a demonstration actually of how you would dance <laughs> no, to no, that but no, um but the uh let's see no I, one I, else was in the I room where I it brought happened no room where it happened paula will take you up on that dangerous suggestion very dangerous I read. Th I brought three hefty tombs with me on a recent vacation. Marty Short's autobiography, which I loved. I must say, I think it's called. Uh, Bill Bryson's A Walk in the Woods, which is a good read. Yes. Uh, and then a third semi-serious book called The Second Machine Age, which I was I found kind of underwhelming, actually. It's written by two MIT economists about, you know, this glorious age of innovation that we're, we're living in. And I think it's sort of a counterpoint to another book that came out earlier this year taking the opposite point of view by a Northwestern economist, Robert Gordon, where he said, you know, essentially that the big innovations actually occurred like in the last century, not this century, the car, the light bulb, etc. Anyway, interesting read. Hmm. Well, those sound really good. I'll add those. I'll put links up to all of those things. So thank you, Gary, Paula, and Graham for joining me and to videographer Sean Butts for filming our conversation so that we can put a segment or two up online at edmontonjournal.com. You can hear previous episodes of the podcast at edmontonjournal.com slash opinion or through the Journal SoundCloud feed. The show is also available on iTunes and TuneIn Radio, so subscribe and the press gallery will be there when we post it. And uh, we'll hopefully get that done later this afternoon so thank you so much for listening we will be back next week in the press gallery we'll be back wait and see you'll remember take it away you paula to me.